Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. COVID-19 has permeated every facet of our lives, job lost, social and family interactions severely restricted, health suffered, and lives lost. We as a nation have to pivot quickly to cope with the pandemic, and the pedagogical process is not immune to this new shift. As we struggle as parents to work at home with our children as they navigate this sudden shift in schooling, appreciation for teachers have skyrocketed. I could not think of any moment in the history that education became so central in our social, political, economic prosperity and its stability. How long will this pandemic last is uncertain. An even more important question is its impact to our lives. We are still learning about the virus. As physicians and scientists, we know that masking and physical distancing are key in preventing the viral transmission and spread. Doctors, nurses, advanced practice providers, medical and nursing assistants are all in the front lines combating the virus and taking care of our precious patients. While scientists are working on the treatment and the creation of the vaccine, educators are also shifting their gears in training our future doctors and medical providers and scientists. As educators, we then have to quickly innovate on how we can achieve all these competencies we expect of students while ensuring safety for our patients and students alike. The training of future doctors and practitioners is regarded as the most rigorous preparation out there. It involves phenomenal commitment, preparation as early as high school, sacrifices, emotional, social, and physical presence. That physical space is now restricted and threatened. Today, Dr. Drew Nevins will highlight how this physical space has been impacted as educators and as also as a clinician. I welcome Dr. Drew Nevins. Dr. Drew Nevins is a clinical associate professor of medicine at Stanford University in the Division of Infectious Diseases. He has been teaching for 15 years. Wow, that is so crazy. He is the medical director for the standardized patient program in the Center of Immersive and Simulation-Based Learning at Stanford University. He is also the medical director for the Masters of Science for Physicians Assistants at Stanford University. He wears multiple hats and he will highlight what those hats are today. So welcome, Drew, and thank you for joining me on this important podcast. Good morning to you, and thank you for having me. I know you said it's crazy about the 15-year thing, and you're right. When I think about it like that, it is kind of crazy. <laughs> it's been a long time. 
So I like to ask you, you are trained as a clinician in infectious diseases. I like to ask you, what inspired you to basically get into medical education? When I was in my fellowship training, I learned a lot about myself, including what really drives me. And I learned when I was a fellow that I really value educating other people with what I'm interested in, what inspires me. So I have always liked to pass that on to someone else. And I really learned that about myself in the midst of my specialty training. And so I've been thankful to be in, a, in an environment at Stanford that's supportive of this and really allows this to be a big facet of my career. When I was initially thinking about my career, it wasn't really necessarily as an educator being most of my job, but I'm so thankful that that's how it's turned out because I love what I do. I had been learning from you all along while I, I was with Educators for Care. So working hand in hand is certainly a great opportunity and a pleasure and an honor to be working with you. When we first got into this panic mode in March and facing this pandemic, take us back how you structured or innovated the program to meet the demands of both faculty and also the students, our learners. Take us back then. It's weird. It seems like such a long time ago, but it's not. It's interesting in so many ways. I remember when, I vividly remember when we made that transition, when we were sort of forced to make that transition from live classroom learning to video, to two-dimensional learning, as I call it, three-dimensional versus two-dimensional, because I had just created or have been helping to create a brand new class for the, some of the first-year students, and it was the final day that we were going to be having this class, and I remember I created this one talk that was going to be the final lecture, the final talk for this class, and I was so excited to do it. I can't even tell you how excited I was, and literally like two days before, it's like, bam, all right. Let's do it by Zoom. And it's a little bit of a shock. It definitely came as a shock. I will say that transitioning a lecture, one lecture or a day, right? That's relatively easy, even though we didn't really have a lot of experience with hosting large groups and lectures on Zoom. We really didn't. But fortunately, we had the ability, you know, everyone was sort of working together to just sort of make it happen. And we did. So that was at least a plus. I will say then really realizing this is not going away and we have to plan the entire quarter this way was a shock. But again, a one-off lecture or just lecture-based materials, that's relatively easy to transition over to a two-dimensional space. But what no one really fully comprehended at the time is this is going to sound, this is going to sound bad, kind of how boring that is. And especially when you're on the other end of it, if you're just, I, I've always been a believer in active learning as opposed to passive learning. So as much as you are in a lecture hall or lecture room, hearing someone talk, that's passive. But when you're not even there in the same space and you're staring at a screen, that's even more passive. And we've all heard of Zoom fatigue and it's real, but that's even more passive. So how to maintain this active-based learning is actually I think the challenge. So as we've been doing it more and more and more, how do we try to integrate active learning into a two-dimensional space? And I think that's been our challenge. I think there's been some struggles with that in a way, because some of the sessions that I like to run really involve people working in small groups and discussing with each other with some faculty to help them. And we have breakout rooms that will facilitate that, but it still feels, it's a little different still. 
that's been the challenge. Transitioning from lectures from live to Zoom, fine, we can do that. But trying to make it exciting and active, that's been the challenge to keep thinking about. I think more than ever, as faculty, we have to be more innovative in keeping our students engaged and participatory in all of the discussions. I recall that even before COVID, we in medical education are used to distance learning already when only 30% of our students attend our lecture series. So we're not new to that. Even way back from my training, when we had co-op notes that the only people who attended the lecture were the person taking notes and a supporter of that student while taking notes. So that's not new, but what will be challenging, I think, is really engaging the students and also this process of laying of the hands. As doctors, we are used to delivering care and training the students by touching, showing them how to touch the patient and examine the patient. So let us transition from the physical lectures to actively participating in actually taking care of the patient, assessing the patient, which entails a lot of touching, listening, palpation. So what happens to that now? The, all the basic of physical exam where we observe, we palpate, we percuss, and we listen with our stethoscope. What's happening on that angle. Wow. Well, this has been interesting. Now, I will say, you know, I, I teach a lot of the clinical reasoning for the first and second year students. What I don't have as much firsthand experience with is teaching the original history and physical examination skills for early learners. I don't do as much of the direct teaching because you were an educator for care yourself. So that was really your realm in terms of the, the early, early learners. But there are a couple of facets to that area of medicine I think are, are, are relevant. One, I'll segue to what you were asking me before. I just I have to give a background in a way. One of the things that I always like to think of, and I mean this, where there's crisis, there can be an opportunity. And what I mean by that is when you're faced with something that you never imagined, that is going to be such a shift into what you do, yeah, of course, it's natural to say, oh, geez, how am I going to do this? This is awful. What a terrible situation I'm in. And you might think that for a while, but at the same time, putting the other spin on it, it gives you an opportunity to really reflect on what am I doing? What are the goals of what I'm doing? And how am I going to make the best of the situation that I'm in? And how that's come about is when I think of how we teach some of the clinical reasoning aspects, especially for early learners, our clinical reasoning sessions, for example, we've all really had to rethink, how are we delivering this curriculum in a way that's going to be more exciting and potentially just very different than what we did before? And without going into all of those details, I'm really proud of all of my colleagues with the practice of medicine course and the clinical reasoning sequence. So, because we've been thinking along these lines, and we've been really trying to restructure what we've been doing. And it gives you, you know, gives us opportunity to think about what we've done and what we can do and how we're going to improve what we do moving forward. So I'm very excited about that, even though it stemmed from a place that started out really frustrating. And I think the same can be said for what you're getting at, which is how do we actually teach these hands-on skills to someone, right? And I agree, that is a challenge. In ye olden days, which isn't that old now, but when you would show up to school, right at the beginning, you're working with 
standardized patients. I'm wearing my standardized patient hat right now. You're working with live people. You're talking with them in the same room. You're doing things with them in the same space, right? And now that we are obviously with public health guidelines and social distancing and whatnot, we've had to take a step back and say, how are we going to deliver the same content, right? And so one aspect of this is, at least in terms of how we interact and discuss things with people, right? Which I'll get to in just a second, because that's what I feel I have a little more. It's one of the main things that I like to emphasize in clinical reasoning and, and in instruction, especially of early learners. But in terms of like teaching that physical exam that you're talking about, how are we going to do that? There's only so much that you can do by mimicking it, by saying what you'd like to do. So how are you going to do it with a live person? Well, you can practice on someone else, right? You can practice. And I, that's what I did when I, because I'm old. That's what I did like in medical school. I was paired up with another person in my class. We learned on each other. That's just what we did, right? So students have the ability to do that, but that's not how we've been doing things. We've been using standardized patients. Well, how are we going to do that if standardized patients aren't physically coming into the space? Well, there are ways that we can think about doing it. How are we going to get the same opportunities for all student learners in a certain amount of time with social distancing, with the physical barriers that we need to protect ourselves with, with the glasses and the masks, it's doable. We just have to really think creatively about how we're going to do that. Everyone needs to learn how to listen to the lungs, how to listen to the heart, how to palpate an abdomen, things like this. There are ways to do it that are just different than what we have traditionally been doing. And that's what's so interesting about where we are. It is allowing us to get creative in a way. And so I'm excited to see where this is going to go, even if I don't have all the answers right now. Mm -hmm. And then discussing things, taking a history, discussing things with people. I love being in the same place with people. I'm a talker. I love talking to people. I love interacting with people. But at the same time, you can learn a lot of those skills in a two-dimensional space. And it's not that it's, quote, not the same thing. Talking to someone is still talking to someone. Getting a history from someone is still getting a history from someone. How you're interacting with someone, sure, it's different in a three-dimensional space, but you and I are interacting right now. Yeah. In a way, I feel like we're in the same room, even though I'm in my kitchen nook and you're in your house, right? Yeah, but how are we doing that interaction? Also, when you think about where medicine is heading, telemedicine's here to stay. So I... as, as a, a medical learner, you have to know how to do this in your careers. And so this is what I mean by this opportunity. Like, how do we learn to educate not only how we used to for the three-dimensional world, but also for telemedicine, which is what we're doing right now. So it's, it gives us this opportunity to really think creatively. And that's what makes, I think, the role of an educator really exciting. Because if you keep it the same, the entire time that you're doing it, it gets a little boring. It's good to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, that is kind of nice. I still remember you, Drew, when we were doing like the diarrhea clinical reasoning, you were carrying your bottle of this <laughs> concoction that looks like really yuck. It looks like really the stools from a patient with diarrhea. So now you don't have to bring that in on that physical space with the students. You could show it in your kitchen. <laughs> That's true. And just, just for those of you listening to be aware, I'm aware that this is not the coffee table conversation that we most usually have. But what, what we're getting at is I mimicked 
some things like this. It was a chopped up Butterfinger bar. And Looks like a yucky diarrhea. <laughs> I, I re- remember. I, so that, that I'm, I'm really learning from you. I taught physical exam and taking a history from the patient. It's really, really important that the patient is on the same physical space as you are, as well as the standardized patient, because it's that interaction that actually really is hard to duplicate on like a Zoom space, right? So even if they had their neighbor as their patient and trying to get a history, the evolution of that history is different from a real authentic person. So I think that will be a big, big challenge for us as educators in medicine. How would we actually do that? So it will be important for us to be reflective and and follow up and listen to our students and how they could help us mimic that special, special interaction. Just to add on, in a way, how you're doing it, just because you're doing something different now doesn't mean it's inferior to what was happening before. It's this evolution of what we're doing. And I think we're in an unprecedented time for many reasons. And so we're learning how to do this. And regardless, I'm proud of the fact that I'm confident that we're still educating to a degree that we know that we're training the next generation effectively, even if it looks different than what we did before. Yeah, I think as we emerge on the other side of the pandemic, when that happens, we will be stronger, more flexible, more resilient, and hopefully more compassionate. Because everyone is going through the same thing, not just in education, in health, families, in workplaces. And then I guess we have to train a new cadre of educators on how to deal with this, right? How do we support our educators now? Those of us who are, have always been interested in education, we're going to do it. I think whether that be in a three-dimensional space or a two-dimensional space, we're going to do it because you know what? This is what I love to do. So what if I have the ability to be in the same space as learners and do it, do things that way? Great. I'm going to enjoy that. If I quote unquote need to be in a two-dimensional space or if when we come out on the other side of this, there still potentially can be opportunities to do a lot of learning in a two-dimensional space. Great, I'm happy to do that. Just because we get out of this, you know, when we emerge on the other side of this, it doesn't mean this, what we're doing now on the two-dimensional space is gonna all of a sudden go away. Can we still use this? And the answer is probably, yeah, there are some advantages to doing things remotely where you can learn something in a different space, right? I've always been a proponent of essentially asynchronous learning. Learn something on your own, see it again. Do something from wherever you are. You could be exercising. You could be in your bed. You could be doing whatever. And you can watch something in a two-dimensional space. How do you keep it active? How do you then have an interactive session with a faculty, with someone else, to apply what you've just learned? That's very interesting, this self-directed learning and action nowadays. I don't know whether I will be envious or I will be happy that I retired from educators from care because I would like to be part of this innovation, thinking outside the box and doing something outside my comfort zone. So I wish I was there with you guys being part of the Educators for Care. You know, you are always part of our family. So come on back. Now, 
Another hat of yours, I know you probably miss the standardized patient, Sarah, but I think you will have a new way of resurrecting that program quite, quite, you know, readily. And, and actually, I just want to say, I, I know we wanted to talk about uh, something else, but I just wanted to, to say one more thing about my work with the standardized patient program in the, the Center for Immersive and Simulation-Based Learning. So last spring, when the pandemic started, this was a week before what's called the mini CPX, clinical performance exam. And this is a standardized patient-based exam that essentially is a requirement for students to successfully complete prior to starting clerkships. And it was literally a, and this is quote unquote, my baby. I love doing this exam. I've been doing this forever. And it was literally week before and bam, we can't do it. And so as someone who really enjoys educating, challenging students and having them learn in, in an environment that's not passive. This is an active learning environment. And any exam, I don't think an exam is a, is a good exam unless you learn something. And I really feel that these sorts of exams, you can learn a lot from. So when we were unable to run this exam, I'll be honest, I was very disappointed. I was very upset because not only is it fun for me, it's a really important learning opportunity for our students. And we were having to miss out on this. And so that being as I got over that, and we're going to be able to run a mini CPX this year in a slightly different format, but one, again, that I still feel very strongly is going to be a great learning opportunity for our students. In the summer, we have a clinical performance exam. That's the clinical performance exam. It's an eight-station standardized patient-based examination that students have to successfully complete as a graduation requirement. And we're part of a consortium of, it was a, now it's actually 10 California medical schools that runs essentially the same exam all throughout the state. And I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to make a transition from a three-dimensional CPX to a two-dimensional CPX, slightly different formatting of things, but Everyone at the, in the, the program worked really hard to make this happen. And I have to give a super shout out to, to Eli and Chris, and especially Karen, Karen Thompson Hall, who's the director of the, of the program who I work with. We, they work so hard. We all work so hard to make this happen. And it's a really, I think a really good example of how you can still do what you need to do in a novel, creative way. So more will be forthcoming about how we not only use standardized patients, but how we run clinical reasoning assessments, I think, throughout the medical curriculum. Yeah, I can't wait to be uh, part of that again, the CPX. I remember how intense the program was and was intense for both the faculty and the learners. So as we divert from the clinical reasoning and the mini CPX and go to another hat of yours, being the director of the Master's in Science for Physician Assistance, tell me what is a physical assistant program? So I just want to be clear. I'm the medical director of the physician, uh, the, what we call the MSPA, Master of Science in Physician Assistant Studies. Our program director is Sue Fernandez, who I work very closely with. She's really the program director. I'm the medical director. And so we have a relatively new physician assistant, master science and physician assistant program 
uh, master's level program at Stanford. And I've been fortunate enough to be a part of that. I mean, essentially, the first class started in 2017, but essentially before that, we started really working on things. And it's been really enjoyable to be a part of this program. We're training clinicians, essentially. I, I, tra- I train clinicians. That's what I do for a living. And so this is an, another approach to what I've been doing for a lot. A big part of my life is educating clinicians. It's been remarkable. So what do they do? Physician uh, assistants. Yeah, so they're called the advanced practice providers. Advanced practice providers right. right. And uh, well, they, no, so a physician assistant, despite the name, it's not really an assistant. And so, and so a lot of people feel a more apt term would be a physician associate. They're part of the team. And this is something also interesting about where medicine is going. I mentioned that telemedicine is here to stay. We do not, we are not going to, nor do we now, but we're definitely not going to be practicing medicine in silos. We're practicing medicine in teams. And so you can be a physician, you can be a physician assistant, you could be a nurse, you could be a nurse practitioner, you could be a dietitian. We're all part of that team. And so training all of our providers to understand how to work in teams is going to be really important. And PAs are clinicians, a quicker, a little quicker training program. It's essentially we have a three-year training program rather than four, but PAs were initially sort of quote unquote created to fill, you know, there are people who were, for example, combat veterans in Vietnam who were come back and there wasn't an, a job for them. And so this sort of spurred this idea to, to bring in people who really could be clinically trained to help, help with other providers, help fill gaps in where we need more people with, for healthcare And so that's sort of where it comes from. And that's one of the big roles of PAs is to be part of teams and to fill some, some gaps where we may not have, a lot of people may not have access to care. A lot of physician assistants are trained to be primary care providers. Our PA training program aims to train clinicians to be, or our PA clinicians to be able to practice in any area of medicine. So whether that be in primary care, whether that be in surgery, whether that be somewhere else, another subspecialty, that's one of the goals of our program. I know at uh, Express Care and in many other departments at Stanford, we have physician assistants and nurse practitioners, and they are really, they play a pivotal role in helping us provide a comprehensive care to our patients. I learned as much from them as they learn from me. So, and I really treasure them working hand in hand with them. And in the medical school program and the MSPA program that you are helping direct, we actually enjoy them in our classrooms. So we have them during the first year and second year as part of the medical school program, right? Could you tell more about that? We're creating this new master's level program is we felt very strongly that there be integration with the medical students, with the MD students, because just taking history, doing a physical exam, this clinical reasoning process, how do you learn to go from point A to point B? It's the same process. It's not like we have to teach PAs a different set of rules than MDs. It's the same thing. So we felt very strongly that there'd be a lot of integration. And in your right a good chunk of our pre-clerkship curriculum is right alongside the MD students. And again, this goes to the whole notion of learning to work together in teams. 
Exactly. I think more than ever, this COVID pandemic had taught us how to be coordinated and united in facing it, right? So I don't think we could face it piecemeal. We will never survive. So I think this outlines and underscores the importance of a multi-coordinated approach and interdisciplinary approach to COVID-19. So I think this would not go away. So we are about the end of our session here. I'd like to ask you any of reflection from you as a clinician and as an educator in terms of what we learned and what we are still learning about the pandemic and what are some take-home points? I think, again, I'm going to come back to what I said before, that when you're faced with a, quote, crisis, when you're faced with something that's challenging, that's difficult, it's new, Sure, you're going to feel that crunch. You're going to feel that it's a crisis, but there's also opportunities in this. And there are ways to approach things that enable you to still do what you need to do and think creatively and come out with a different perspective on what you're doing. And so whether that be how we teach in a active learning format to try to maintain the active learning, whether it be what our entire curriculum is looking like from a clinical reasoning standpoint, we have to rethink how we're structuring things, or whether it be from a clinical standpoint, how are we engaging our students to still get the same type of clinical training as they did before? It's really interesting. And so I think the takeaway is you can do it. Where there's crisis, there's opportunity. It's opportunity for us to think creatively and to make sure that we can still get our objectives across and in a way that might be different. And I'm proud of the work that I've been able to do with wearing multiple different hats. And I'm proud of the work I've, I've been doing with my other colleagues, whether it be in some of the coursework, whether that be with the standardized patient program or with the master's of science and physician assistant studies program. We're all working together to create something that is still a really rich and robust experience for all levels of learners. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And I can't wait to see all the competencies and skills of our future providers. Thank you for your time today, Drew. And we'll talk more later. Absolutely. We'll talk more about it. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, ACAS, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you in our next episode.